I do think organizations have a responsibility to pay livable wages. I also think other people have some responsibility around that, which is government and, you know, the support around that. But one is because, you know, and that's where some of the pay justice terminology comes in is that, you know, if you really, for instance, are committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, if you're not paying people a livable wage out of the gate, you're limiting who you're recruiting. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Pay transparency, pay equity, and more recently, pay justice are terms that I'm encountering more and more at HR conferences and in people's strategy thought pieces. But while these terms sound warm and fuzzy, I mean, who's really opposed to equity or justice, what do these terms really mean when when we're talking about them in an organizational sense? And what does pursuing them in a meaningful way mean to an organization? Joining me today to discuss all of this is Sally Loftus. Sally is an HR consultant specializing in people strategy and pay equity. She is also the managing director at Loftus Partners, the consulting firm she founded in 2020 and through which she has worked with clients across three continents. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Sally. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let's just start with definitions and then we can just break those down through our conversation. But what are pay transparency, pay equity, and pay justice? And if those aren't in the right order uh, to break them down, whatever is easiest for you, you know. But what what are what do those terms really mean? I'm game. There's a there are a lot of terms used, so let's go for it. So pay transparency is definitely um, a a term that people have gotten more familiar with from a legal compliance standpoint from HR. So there have been states territory cities that have passed pay transparency laws and not all of those laws are the same for the record you know depending on where you are it may be how big your business is what you have to report um, so pay transparency is typically you're reporting um, if you're in the United States it's going to be you're probably putting um, the salary range for a job opening out there so that's typically what that is actually like for instance in England um, there's more in-depth reporting so if we were talking about other continents that'd be a different conversation but um, so then pay equity is a term and I kind of use it as an umbrella term there's some things underneath it Um, so pay equity is making sure that um, you know generally is going to be people are being paid the same across jobs And then there's a term pay parity, which I kind of fold into pay equity is that, you know, people of different demographics, um, whether it might be gender, race, ethnicity, are being paid equally across an organization. So I typically kind of lump all that together in in pay equity. And then pay justice is a term that I use in thinking about kind of the systemic work that we're doing around pay because our traditional compensation models are broken, at least in my opinion. And so really trying to look at new ways and new frameworks to pay people in equitable ways is really about pay justice. Okay. So then let's start with that pay transparency thing. I mean, Colorado, uh, you know, they passed their their pay transparency law that uh, they, they at least insist that is applicable to any employer posting any job that may be filled by a Colorado citizen. 
or applied to by a Colorado citizen. Um, and so, and it's, it basically says you've got to have a pay range, uh, posted in New York city's got a similar law and, you know, it's just, it's caught on like, you know, wildfire in the last 18 months or so. What I'll, I'll, I'll let you dive in that. What is, what, what's the reason for posting those ranges? I would say advocates for those laws would say uh, the reasoning is about bringing um, some level of equity into roles, um, having um, an idea of kind of what people are paying out there from an organizational standpoint. I will say, you know, when I work with organizations, the reasoning can, there can be multiple reasons. One is obviously there's legal compliance, but two is that it's really one way to bring a level of transparency and trust into the recruitment process. And then also it's really, you know, if you're looking at, for instance, posting salary ranges and your job openings, if you've not had that conversation internally with organizations, you know, within your organization, you, you know, that might be a surprise to some people in the organization. So if you can get out ahead of that, that's also a trust building action that you can take with your employees internally. So, on the legislative front, the argument is that employers should post that information in order to what? I mean, because you're talking about a you know a band or a wage you know a, a range. Um, so how does how does transparency serve a public you know a, you know a public interest from mm-hmm. the point of view yeah. of, of legislators anyway? Yeah, it's definitely about um, it's a level of accountability for organizations that they haven't had before. Um, it's also a level of being able to kind of check what the equity portion, you know, kind of how people are being paid, the equity portions around, um, you know, what a certain position, you know, a lot of organizations are required to, you know, um, internally report pay data to the government, right? And so this is kind of more of a public view of that. Obviously, these laws are not all inclusive of every role all over the United States, but um, it's really kind of trying to open the curtain on pay at organizations and have more transparency with these groups. So if there are groups that are traditionally, you know, sign- you know under significantly underpaid for same job, you know, same, same educational choices, job, tenure and role, those things. Um, the argument is that, that some groups are paid less or offered less or end up making less in those roles. Uh, I'm, I'm I, what's the, when we say accountability, what is, what does that really mean? What do we really, who's accountability for what? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate you kind of pushing into this is that, you know, it's, there's been a lot of research as well around negotiation. So there's some level of, you know, there will be organizations who post ranges and maybe it's not the full range of a job because they expect people to negotiate. So this is kind of answering your question. This is one level of accountability around equity as well, is that if you're posting that range, people have an idea of what they're getting into. And if it's actually the full range, which would be what the laws require, um, they know what the negotiation space is, right? Versus just kind of relying upon who are the best negotiators in a process because there's been lots of research in there around bias um, and negotiation, uh, you know, in different demographic identities and intersectional identities. So that's one piece is that if you're starting, everybody's starting from the same negotiation space, 
that that opens up some equity there. And and I guess dovetailing in that with that are you know a number of jurisdictions have said that employers can't inquire into what an employee's previous salaries or candidates' previous salaries were at a role and what is what's their logic behind that? Yeah, is that, you know, some of these salary history bans that people have gone into is really, again, about not trying to lowball people, you know, in the salary standpoint um, of, you know, just because somebody maybe has made less in a previous position, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you should pay them at that level, right? Um, Eliminating the questions around salary history, again, kind of takes some of the um, conscious and unconscious bias out of those hiring decisions. And it's just kind of another level of accountability in that process. Not all inclusive, but one mm-hmm. one step of it. And certainly from the employer point of view, the logic makes sense that um, if I post this, jo- this, this pay range and it's the true pay range that I'm really willing to consider for this role, this is the value in hard dollars that this role brings to our, you know, to our, our production. It's not, has nothing to do with personal value of this person as a person, you know, anything like that. This is and people mix those things up a lot in memes and stuff like that on, on the internet, but the real value of the work to the output and how we serve our customers. But, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to, if, if, if I'm on the low end of the market, let's say for that role, I wouldn't want to interview a bunch of people who are going to be outside of that salary expectation. And mm-hmm. I think too often I've seen it in, you know, over my HR career and in uh, working with clients that often they end up in a position where the candidate they want, of course they want, because this is the candidate who has excelled and been able to go find uh, the more, com- you know, win the more competitive positions, higher paying positions, and has built more experience doing those, those higher level jobs, even though the job title may be very similar. Uh, why waste your time or theirs? Uh, and, you know, and I hear the argument on the flip side, well, you know, we've got an amazing culture and people would want to come work here, uh, but they're eliminating us because we don't pay what they think. Well, you can put that in your job posting too. And how competitive, Mm -hmm. you know, how compelling that is to somebody who's looking to jump ship, you know, you know, jump ship from their current employer for a a better paying position. And, you know, certainly nobody wants to go down in culture. Nobody wants to select a, you know, a, a, a less favorable place to work. But you have to be pretty darn good to make, you know, to, to not just, you know, to justify a pay decrease. And so you have to be really miserable in, the, in your current position. So uh, I think from that point of view, it makes a lot of sense for employers. Yeah, I love what you said there about like, think, you know, a lot of times I work with clients around like, who are you competing for talent? Like, wh- what's your, you know, kind of what's the talent pool you're in? And where are you willing to compete? And where are you not willing to compete? So I work with a lot of small businesses and nonprofits, which tend to have less money, you know, mm-hmm. coming in for salary and benefits. So it's tip- it is like you said, the culture, or it could be like an unlimited time off or, you know, kind of different benefits. And, um, just even having that conversation within the organization to say, okay, we may not be able to p- compete with this group that pays double what we are, but we can say what we can offer and realize that people may leave, but if they, you know, have a, like you said, a really strong culture, a, who have a flexible schedule and have a culture that supports that, right, which right. can be separate sometimes, mm-hmm. then people may be willing to stay 
because, you know, they have a really great leader. Um, they're able to kind of work on their own schedule, things like that, that can be just as important as paying benefits. And, in a, you know, in a perfect world, an employer would really have a strong sense of what this value really is of this role. And this is what we really want to pay and what somebody made at their previous employer. The, that employer's value of that role shouldn't necessarily drive what the, you know, how we value this person's contribution in this other role. But there are organizations that um, just operate very differently. And, um, uh, and if they've got a really, you know, you know, if they just call everybody an engineer and there's not engineer one, two, three, four, uh, then, then maybe, you know, there is some market information being shared there with that high, you know, this person was making, you know, 20% 20% higher than what our engineers make. Uh, so they, they, you know, there's some market information being, you know, that's what prices are. And, and um, so maybe we, we need to reevaluate what we're doing or, uh, or maybe we assume that this person, or we, we make an initial assumption until we get to the interview that this person is going to bring a higher level of value. And, and if we don't know what they were making, then, you know, maybe, you know, we're having to look for other clues as to, to what their value might be. Yeah, that's a great frame on that of just, you know, if you working in HR for many years of, yeah, sometimes you might be like, oh, I'm not going to interview this candidate because they're obviously overqualified or they're already making more than what we can pay. And so you may not interview them. Um, because, and like you right. said, you're kind of having to check your own assumptions, but some of that data, we can have our own biases. You know, it may be that person really wants has heard really great things about your organization or really wants that job because it's in a specific geographic location or there's some kind of benefit you have, you know, things like that. So that's, I really appreciate that you frame it in that because it can't, sometimes you think about the salary history, history ban and it'd be like, well, you know, we're just trying to hide that this person's going to get a 40% pay, <laughs> pay bump, but sometimes it's people are paid more than what we're looking at and we can weed them out of the candidate um, pool just because of those things. So then pay equity mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you tied pay parity in there. Uh, if, if I'm right, that's re- what you're really saying is that just looking demographically at people in the same role and making sure there aren't unexplained gaps in how we, how we compensate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I start with organizations and doing a pay equity assessment And um, it's really looking at, to your point, you know, typically if they have salary bans, so there's some organizations I work with that don't even have salary bans, right? Right. So um, it may be that's the starting place, but then looking at, okay, you know, do you have people within the salary ban and have some people who are outliers um, from a pay perspective? And that may be because they went through a merger acquisition, right? And sometimes you inherit people, you know, into your pay systems um, that you don't make choices on, but, you know, is there a pattern? there, you know, maybe in this certain department or in this certain role. And then we'll look at around gender, race, and ethnicity. We'll look at tenure, you know, um, because that's typically one where you might see the the longer people have been with the organization, maybe their salaries aren't growing as fast as people who've come in. So that might be a sign that um, there's some salary compression uh, within the organization. Uh, We look at kind of highest paid, lowest paid, 
departments, sometimes people can pay differently based, you know, maybe it was five years ago, this skill was super hot and they had to pay more, you know, for this skill and they've never kind of adjusted back to what the market is. So there's a lot of different things that can come up in pay equity um, as you start kind of drilling down into your data. So you have to be an organization of a certain size to really have that much data though, right? I mean, uh, you know, a small organization with that's doing payroll in-house on, you know, whatever system that they're, they've got, uh, you know, with 50 or 60 employees, you know, they may not have all of those data points just to, you know, to run cross tabs and do all the, 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 the data manipulation. What would it look like for a, a small to medium-sized organization that really wanted to do a, a, that kind of equity analysis? Yeah, that's a great question because I do run into sometimes the first kind of intervention in my work is let's talk about what pay data you do have access to, you know, and are you able to look at it? And if you aren't, then let's talk, you know, let's talk about that. Uh, So actually, I'm working with a client right now has 15 employees. And so um, we really looked at like the issue there was kind of there wasn't like the stair step as you go up in the bands, like a, a strong enough stair-step process of growing your pay as you went up in the bands. And so we're kind of doing, we're working on that right now. But yeah, part of it is some people just don't even have the data. Some people don't collect enough of the data, for instance. Um, And so sometimes it may be like actually give them an Excel spreadsheet to start with, right? And just say, let's let's work with the data here because maybe their system doesn't always pull the data in the way they need it. And so we're having to kind of you know, I think people call it Frankenstein, the data, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit into this. So then we can look at it. And so we may even have to manually go through and figure out, okay, these are the demographic areas we want to be sure that we're, we're examining. So maybe we don't have gender uh, in our payroll mm-hmm. system, or yeah. you know, which, which is probable if it's strictly a payroll system and, and not, you know, a fearful HRS, uh, you know, age, race, uh, national or you know national origin things like those that could be could be all be things that you just have to go through and either pull from multiple sources or just sit down and somebody you know goes through like like we sometimes do with our EEO demographic data and we just have to pick you know so the the candidate or the applicant doesn't t- you know fill out the EEO data so we just you know you just sit down and you say okay well based on you know this experience, my experience in this area, this is what I'm going to have on categorize them for reporting purposes. And so, but at least that's better, I guess, than, than not doing anything and, uh, you know, um, or, or, or just ignoring those, those, those data points. So, yeah, I usually, or sorry, I was going to say, um, you know, I was going to say, and I usually will work with some groups. Sometimes there is like a, a column of, we don't know. And that's okay, because some people choose not to share their data, right, Mm -hmm. if they have. And sometimes it's helping them expand categories. So they may, you know, for gender, they may only have two options, you know, or, you know, race and ethnicity, they may have, they may need to expand their options. So that's even an element of kind of working with groups. So while we're still on pay equity, how, I mean, we, you know, we hear the, the number, the, you know, male and female numbers of, you know, 25, roughly 25, 27% gap between men and women in general in the U.S., you know, regardless of occupation, experience, anything, just, uh, and a lot of that is self-selection and other experiences that are outside of the employer's 
you know, really way outside of, you know, it's either public policy or cultural issues that are outside of the employer's control. But if I'm right, the, the most recent data is that it's between an, uh, a nickel to seven cents per dollar uh, and adjusted for position and experience, which is still a significant number. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to yeah. be paid 7% less than, you know, but right. I'm always the best, you know, I'm always the best employee any place I'm at. So of that's, of course, course I am. Of course. But, of course. Um, but uh, you know, so that's still a, you know, I don't want to minimize that gap. But if that's, you know, if we're talking about that, that trying to close that gap, you know, what, what are the most meaningful ways to begin to, to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. And I get asked that a lot because it is, it's typically about in the US, it's about 16% is what the gender pay gap, gap is. As you start adding race and ethnicity onto that, you mm-hmm. know, for instance, um, you know, Latin women, it's, um, you know, 53 cents to the dollar. So that's a significant gap. And right? again, you're talking about that whole demographic, General, right, regardless right. of occupation. Exactly, okay. exactly. And so you've got a lot of, you've got an immigrant, you've got a lot of immigrant mm-hmm. population there, uh, a lot of, uh, and first generation uh, population. I'm, I'm thinking uh, the, you know, uh, fewer education opportunities, things like that, that would drive, and, you know, and, you know, just being female, a lot of choices of, uh, or necessities, maybe even around mm-hmm. childcare. And we've talked about childcare several times on this podcast about, uh, the crisis that's facing employers and um, uh, employees in that area. So they would, so that would be a big, so Hispanic mm-hmm. females would have a, a significant issue in, mm-hmm. uh, in that gap. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and like you said, those are some systemic issues, mm-hmm. right? Not just an, an organization may not be able to solve all that. So some things, you know, a couple of things, just if you want to talk about, you know, women, um, in different genders is like, you know, they call it um, the broken rung of the career ladder. So for women, um, men are more often promoted into that first level supervision role than all other genders. So um, really looking at maybe your numbers, right, of just saying, okay, who are we promoting? Are we promoting, you know, is there some kind of pipeline of promotions, things like that? So what are, you know, looking at how that's um, going there. There's also something called the glass um, cliff, which is that once w- women get to the top, they top out maybe in like before the C-suite or maybe they're in the C-suite, not in the CEO role. So really looking at how can we intentionally build pathways for um, these underrepresented groups to to get into these positions. Some of that may be internally, some of your practices, procedures, policies, things like that. Some of that may be, you know, who you're hiring. Obviously, you know, there's only so many openings the farther up you go, right? right. So some of that is just basically you don't have any openings, you know. So those are some of the, you know, really looking at your internal talent pipeline is really important now, but especially important now because of the um, lack of employee engagement we have within the workplace. And then it's just a really tough labor market. So people are going to have to be really intentional about growing their own leaders. And so that would be intentional mentorship programams Mm -hmm. uh, and, and things that build connection across the organization, not just in your silo of, you know, I work in accounting, so I'm just going to know accounting people. Uh, we've talked about those kinds of things a lot on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else would you do to 
especially on earlier career stuff to make sure that that those opportunities, uh, the things that lead to the opportunities, like I said, you know, the mentorships and the, those relationships. But what else? What else would you do early in a, in, in the, somebody's career to ensure that that you're setting them up for you know financial success in the organization? Yeah, I think one thing is job rotation. Um, you know, there's a strict definition of that, but just even like, can you have somebody maybe work on a project that's in another department so they get exposure across different departments? Um, as you said, I think there's a level of mentorship and, you know, reverse mentorship is really becoming popular. So some of the younger people sharing, you know, with some of the older um people or the more tenured people in the organization, I think having people participate in communities of practice, whether it's internal, external, or a combination of those. So maybe it's, you know, they're in a leadership community of practice. And then I also think um, having learning group opportunities, people more and more what I'm finding, I'd be curious if you see this too, Mike, of like small group learning, peer coaching has become really powerful um, especially in these last few years. So I think having those kinds of opportunities are really beneficial. So just ongoing uh, a training and development program that mm-hmm. isn't focused on just this one employee that, okay, we're going to select this high potential employee and, and keep investing in them, but bringing a group of people, of peers together to do training and cross training and those kinds of things. Yeah. It also builds a sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm, So think about your new, you know, newer in your career or newer at this organization, you've got five or six people that are participating in something and kind of built, you know, across departments, become a trusted resource for you. And you're probably going to be less likely to leave, right? If you've got this, hopefully. Um, But, you know, if you've got this group of trusted people, you can, you know, be in cahoots with. And so you mentioned community of practice. I'm not familiar with that term. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me yeah. what we're talking about there. Yeah, there's um, community of practice is, you know, a term used like I've been in a pay equity community of practice where it was number of organizations who were all doing pay equity and it was all kind of C-suite level people that decided there were no other resources out there except each other. So we decided, you know, one group decided we're going to do a monthly meeting. And so we basically just kind of came together and talk through the different um, things that were going on. There's some more formal communities of practice. You may see like an HR community of practice. I see this a lot in nonprofits. Um, you know, you may have an executive director community of practice where it's just, there's some kind of, kind of thread of commonality that brings everybody together and they can come into the space and just kind of talk about this topic and be resources for each other. So it's, I mean, it's like our professional associations, things like that. Yeah, but they're more informal. Right. Okay. Interesting. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 121 and enter the keyword Compensation. That's C-O-M-P-E-N-S-A-T-I-O-N. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Sally Loftus. So... We, I don't want to skip pay justice. So mm-hmm. 
help me understand the difference between pay equity and pay justice. Yeah, pay justice is kind of a newer term, but it's really about the systemic pieces of that. So, you know, thinking about, you know, one thing I work with organizations who are like, well, I'm paying kind of what the government's telling me to pay, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, for instance, I live in North Carolina where our state minimum wage is $7.25. And there are other, you know, obviously states and territories who have different ones. And so um, pay justice is really about saying, okay, as an organization, I can kind of wait for everybody else to tell me what to do. Or I can say systemically, I'm going to be a leader in this space or I'm going to, you know, really um, bring pay into more reasonable levels rather than waiting. And so sometimes, you know, for instance, like I said, I work with nonprofits, foundations, some government groups um, that they may be kind of the leader in their sector or in their geographic location to say, okay, we are able to pay this wage and we want, we're going to lead everybody to paying more. We're going to help bring up the market a little bit because doing that retains more employees in the sector or in this geographic location. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't want to dirty the term justice, but you you mentioned what does it cost to retain this employee? And, and you know, and really that's, economics 101 though right uh it's just uh it's got you know uh, you know justice adds this this sense of being maybe more noble than we really are mm-hmm. talking about when we you mm-hmm. know we're just really going to say what you know this is the available workforce in this market we're, we're we're investing in training and onboarding these employees and and making them successful what's the value of this employee who's already fully integrated into our system what's a, you know what's the cost of and it's and those are always fuzzy numbers that that come, organizations aren't good at fooling but what's the cost of losing this employee and replacing them uh, and you know there is some hard number though that says well if this wage gets above this for this job we find a way to automate it right mm-hmm. I mean, you know and yeah. it's, and and, uh, and so but it's 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 a business you know I think it's still got to be a business decision so um, let me ask, okay, now we're really going to get into it. Um, first the, uh, the idea that, uh, an employer should pay a livable wage. What is a, what is that definition? That's what is the definition of a livable wage to you when we're talking about, uh, about whether, you know, and, and do you think an employer has a responsibility to pay a livable wage or to pay what the market will bear and what the value of that role is to what's delivered? through that role. Wow. We could talk for hours just about those two, those two questions. Thank you. I will say, so a livable wage is going to be in general is going to be, can I pay my bills day to day, you know, month to month, whatever to live my basic necessities. So um, what that looks like is, you know, where a livable wage, you know, what that might be varies by location. So in general, United States is about across all households. So this goes from a single person to a person with six kids in the house, you know, two mm-hmm. working adults is in general about $60,000, the cost of living. Right. So now I live in North Carolina where it's like 51,000. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So mine is lower, but then you go to Seattle, DC, you're looking at 95,000. So a livable wage is going to look different. 
based on where those are. So that's kind of number one. And I will say around the livable wages. So asking about the responsibility of organizations and businesses. Um, Yes, I do think organizations have a responsibility to pay livable wages. I also think other people have some responsibility around that, which is government and, you know, the support around that. But one is because, you know, and that's where some of the pay justice terminology comes in, is that if we're not paying people, um, you know, if you really, for instance, are committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, if you're not paying people a livable wage out of the gate, you're limiting who you're recruiting. So, you know, I mean, you, if you're on, you know, for instance, if I'm, you know, in a place that pays six, you know, the cost of living is $60,000 and it's a full-time year-round role and I'm only paying 45000 well, not all the qualified candidates can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones who maybe have another adult in the house who are working or, you know, I mean, there's different barriers. So I do think organizations have a responsibility to pay living wages because otherwise it can be seen as exploitative. Um, and I also recognize that that's a huge leap, right? Mm-hmm. Especially for some groups, especially small businesses. And it could mean less jobs if you have to pull those up. Um, but I would encourage people to look at kind of the long-term consequences of not paying those wages. Cause I would think long-term your turnover And the cost around that is going to be higher than getting to that living wage. And and you work in the comp area. I I spent most of my HR career running away from anything with numbers. So comp and benefits (laughs) was not what I wanted to do. Uh, And um, so, but what are you seeing, um, you know, since March of 2020, we've all gone remote Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm starting to see a lot of my clients uh, who have, you know, not only, you know, you know, hybrid workplaces, but they've also got fully, fully remote employees and they're hiring, you know, these engineers want to live in Wyoming and, and fish and hunt and do whatever you get to do in Wyoming, freeze your butt off in the winter. And, uh, so they're not, uh, you know, and so they're hiring, you know, based in Texas, but they're hiring, you know, someplace where the, the regional cost of living and just the regional you know, the amount of opportunity you, I mean, you moved out, you have a lot of your engineering jobs available to you if you live in Wyoming versus Austin. Um, so what are you seeing there as far as regional costs affecting how employers pay? And is that just, you know, if you, if you're really an employee, the employer that's willing to go be a multi-state employer and hire anywhere, does that, is that just really widening the salary bands then that those employers have? And, um, and what is, you know, from, you know, from that, that concept of justice, what does that mean for those employees who live in New York city, those lower skill, lower demand employees who live in, you know, New York city versus, uh, other places where the cost of living like North Carolina or, you know, central Texas or wherever is, is significantly less. Yeah, there's, you know, I've seen varied approaches to this. So you might see some organizations post a job and say, you know, based on kind of the region of the country, here's what the salary band is. There are some organizations that just pick whatever their home city is going to be. And it may be one that's a higher cost of living than the national average. Um, there's some people who've not even addressed this yet, I will say. There's a good group out there. And so just kind of asking, so what I'm seeing around geographic location is there's certainly a, a wide approach. I am not a fan of organizations 
if somebody moves, paying them less. Um, you know, yeah, right. I mean, right. Take that. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in the geographic location of like, oh, well, they have, you know, so a couple of examples here. One is, for instance, I live in a rural, uh, 16,000 people in my county. So I live in rural North Carolina. So people will say, oh, it doesn't cost as much to live there. Well, actually, it does because we have less housing. We have to drive. If you need to go see a specialist for healthcare, you're going to drive at least an hour, if not two hours. You know, you're driving longer distances, you know, things like that. So I think sometimes we think rural means less, and that's not always true. I think also sometimes we think people are in locations and they may not be there by choice. It may be because they have family there. It may be because, you know, they've inherited a house and it's super affordable. Or, you know, they may be there because they're caregiving for somebody who has a lot of healthcare needs and need to have access. So I think we've got to be a lot more expansive in our geographic location piece. So I'm not the type who's like, you know, be super strict on where people are. And that's like where you pay them. I think it's for nationwide organizations, at least, I think it's more helpful to have kind of an idea of what you're going to pay versus letting it come up with every geographic location as you hire. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about salary, uh, but there's a lot more that goes into comp than just salary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, total, you know, total uh, cost of an employee, including state taxes, but also, you know, your, your benefits cost, uh, whatever perquisites you've got, those kinds of things. How does that figure in when you're looking at these issues of, you know, transparency or equity or even justice, how do those things figure into trying to determine, you know, what the right dollar figure is for, for this job? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of times it's, you know, having employee feedback sessions and hearing from them. So, you know, some things I've heard from employee feedback sessions with clients of like, you know, people being like, I'd rather you rather than give me, you know, $50 here for this and $25 here for this, just collapse everything into my pay. You know, or it may be like, I'm willing, you know, for you to, um, I'd much rather you pay for 100% of my healthcare coverage than have this much professional development. So I think some of that is just listening to employees and understanding, you know, what's there. I think once you're paying a livable wage, the discussion is different um, because people then can kind of look at it different because they're not as worried about paying bills month to month. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, those are a couple of the pieces. And then the rewards, like for me, as an, whenever I, you know, worked internally for HR, on an annual basis, I printed out individual for every single employee that had, this is what we're paying, you know, this is how much we pay for health insurance every year. This is how much we pay state taxes so that they understood that it wasn't just what they were getting paid, but they could understand all the other kind of ancillary, but required, you know, things that the organization was paying on top of that. Yeah. And I think that's one thing every employer, uh, you know, I'm generally against the government telling you to do it, but just out of self-defense mode, if nothing else, make sure your employees understand, you know, we pay, you know, 95% of your healthcare expense. And this is what that really comes out to. uh, And, here's what it would look like on the open market. I mean, you know, if you could really say, you know, here's what, you know, if, if uh, you get an ACA, you know, uh, market plan, this is what it would cost you. And so, because we're buying as a group and, and, you know, this is what we're paying and what versus what you're paying. And that would go a long way 
to helping employees compare job A to job B and what their opportunities are. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people don't, you know, accept a job based on the salary and they don't even understand uh, what their benefits are and what the, you know, really a, a lot of the things that make you want to work someplace are until they go through orientation. And then they're still confused because most people don't do a very good job at orientation either. So, <laughs> well, I, I agree with you that on that. And yeah, I mean, w- that's a great example. The healthcare piece, um, you know, a lot of times people don't have any idea. Like I've heard from employees, like I want a healthcare plan that I don't have to change providers every year because they're mm-hmm. trying to get the lowest price. Right. Or even for instance, an organization that may say they have unlimited paid time off. Well, there's a difference in saying you have it and then having a culture that supports it. So that's a little different question, you know, and asking that. So those are great points you brought up. So let's, uh, let's finish on this because you you brought it up a couple of times, unlimited time off. I think Mm -hmm. it's a scam, but uh, because I've not seen, have you seen an employer truly implement unlimited PTO? And is that just for exempt employees or, you know, how, how does that actually work? Because I can't, I haven't seen an example where it, where it really works. And the companies that say they have it, I think the studies all show that those people are less likely to actually take PTO than somebody who's got a fixed amount of PTO in their bank every year. Mm, that's good. Yeah. I love this rabbit hole. Okay, yeah. let's do it. We're going to end it um, on a, this is a French goodbye. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah this yeah. is great. Yeah, I love it. I, I will say, you know, it's interesting. I see... Just based on my experience, smaller businesses are able to manage this a little better, probably a little differently because they do have a little more view on it than if you have 600 or 10,000 employees, right, doing um, paid time off. So I think size makes a difference here. I think also what I find is in the groups that do that, what they do really well is really more of a flexible schedule and also, maybe the senior leaders are modeling, they instead of taking a week off, they may take two weeks off. Mm-hmm. And so are modeling some of that for people. So those are ways that support that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm with you. It, 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 it's real, you know, because there's studies that show that people, even if they have the time off, they don't take it, right? And then it's based on how it's categorized. Do you have sick time? Do you have, you know, holidays? You have, you know, things like that. So yeah, I think I think it's going to be something that may be more popular in the future, but the culture to support it is going to be really important to your point. It can't just be words. It's got to be deeds. And it's got to be tied back. I, I would think the only way it would work is tie it back to that person's total productivity. Is the job mm-hmm. getting done at the end of the day? And so we're really talking mm-hmm. more about flexibility than we are, mm-hmm. you know, but here's what the goals are for the quarter. And here's what's got to happen on a weekly basis and how you got to support your team. But, um, you know, you take the time you need, you plan the time, you make sure that there's no other conflicts. I mean, you, you coordinate it. I mean, this idea that, well, it's my PTO, so I'm just going to take it today. And it's not illness. It's, it's just, uh, you know, I want to go do this without coordinating with the rest of the team doesn't work. Uh, but, and I don't know that you can do an you know, I can see unlimited PTO for an executive, or not executive, but for a, an exempt position. Mm-hmm. I, I are, are there organizations doing it for hours? I was like, you asked yeah. me that question. I was like, I don't think so. I've yeah, not seen that with non exempt. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that would be really a challenging I way. Yeah. I, was, I think legally that. that would be tough. Yeah. Well, 
Uh, thank you, Sally. That's all the time we have, but that was a uh, really interesting conversation in an area that I only have opinions about and very little data. So, so thanks for, uh, for, for sharing your, your background and experience. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Please don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.